Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Yeah, being found faithful. That, um, while I'm, we're talking about uh, um, Nehemiah returning, going, going back, when I say going back to Israel, it's not, he wasn't there before, but Nehemiah returns to Israel and he finds spiritual decline. And I was thinking this morning about what's happening in Israel now. We don't have to worry about what's happening in Israel in terms of the, the war. We can certainly pray for Israel, and we can certainly pray that they respond well to their enemies. But really, we probably should be praying mostly for their spiritual well-being. God will do what he will do with Israel. We don't have to worry about that. You know, if, if Hamas or, or enemies, uh, we don't need to worry about that. We'll pray for Israel, pray for their spiritual revival. Um, God will, will take care of Israel. And he will judge them accordingly, as he has, over and over for their apostasy. And um, it's probably safe to say that Israel has suffered uh, um, because of their, their unfaithfulness. God cares about Israel, and God will do what he thinks is best. So I, I don't worry about Israel, but I pray that, I pray that they would be found faithful. Um, but just like when Ezra returned... Uh, Nehemiah discovered uh, there was moral laxity, people had backslidden. Um, and so, uh, so Malachi, as you know, Malachi is like the last book in the Bible. He's a, a minor prophet that you'll hear about in a few weeks, or probably not the lesson after this one. So you'll hear about Malachi uh, in the coming months. But he's a contemporary of Nehemiah, and he exposed the sin of the uh, what we call the post-exilic or the post-exile Jews, the, the Jews that came back after the exile. And not only were the people um, unfaithful, so were the priests. And so in this lesson, I have a lot of Bible verses, and you'll have to be on your toes, and I'll have to try not to talk too fast as I go th- scroll through a bunch of verses, and you can see the, the, um, uh, the depth of Israel's problem. And I suspect that it's the same problem today. I don't think that this is, um, this isn't unique to Nehemiah and Malachi's time. Uh, it's, it's probably the problem today. But the priests were bored with their duties. They were offering sick animals. You know, so if you had an injured animal, offer that as a sacrifice. It's not really a sacrifice. The animal was useless anyway. Um, and so I'm hoping that you can glan- or at least breeze through these verses as I go along. If you miss a word here and there, it's not critical. I think what I'm saying is summarizing. Um, the priest even lost respect for the people. They were showing partiality and administering justice. Remember, the priests were involved in government in those times. Um, they ignored the Sabbath. It was just another day for business and trade. Uh, We've kind of seen that even in our own nation. Uh, When I was growing up, a lot of businesses were closed on Sunday, and now it's not that way anymore. Uh, People weren't paying their tithes, and so what what happened then 
was um, uh, then the Levites, the priests had to work. And so they tended their farms and then their priorities got, um, you know, misaligned. So they neglected their duties so they could earn a living. Um, the high incidence of divorce was uh, a public scandal. Uh, people were getting divorced a lot. This is not just a modern problem. This is a problem that's been through the ages. Um, there was a prevalence of witchcraft, adultery, uh, bearing false witness, exploitation of, of workers and the underprivileged. Again, all these things that sounds like our culture today. Um, what was happening is the, what this is really terrible, is um, if there were times of drought and, and, and an effort to pay taxes, people would mortgage their fields. They even found themselves having to sell their own children into slavery just so they could pay their debts. And what was terrible about that is this was even, this was even to other, you know, their Jewish over, you know, their brothers who were overlords. So the rich Jewish people were taking advantage of the poor. And then, of course, intermarriage was becoming common again. Um, you know, Ezra addressed that, and now it's, um, it's still a problem. So uh, with no sense of direction, and a distinct lack of morale, there was real danger that the, the Jewish community that had returned to Jerusalem would disintegrate. Uh, Ezra was concerned about reforming uh, the nation's spiritual life, whereas Nehemiah's goal was to overhaul its civil government. Um, now, since uh, I'm going to go back to history here, uh, since the books of Ezra display similarities in style and perspective, and they were originally, by the way, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible originally. They may have been produced by one writer. So we think that maybe Ezra wrote this book, but we're not sure. Um, the, the problem is um, that Nehemiah is written in a lot of first person. So it kind of almost seems autobiographical. And as a result, tradition presumes that Nehemiah did write the book just because of the way that it's written. Again, it's hard to know for sure. Obviously, we're going back, um, you know, more than you know, 2,400 years ago, so um, a long time. Uh, so just to give you perspective, uh, again, um, we started the class before you. Carter's going to be doing um, First and Second Kings. I think he's doing in fact, I think he's doing uh, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, and I'm not sure. I think maybe, possibly uh, Joshua. I'm not. I'm not sure who's doing all that. But anyway, that's the class before us. We did First and Second Chronicles, or Gary and I did, and First Chronicles kind of covered uh, this section of history. I don't. I'm going to do a timeline soon here. And these are key dates. Right now, uh, you can see, uh, so this would be 586, was the end of, sec end of Second Chronicles. Tells of the captivity, which is seven year 70 years. Persia, I'm going to talk about that briefly. Uh, talk about Persia and Babylon. Ezra was last week, and then another generation we're talking, or, well, some overlap here, Nehemiah. So... Um, that gives you an idea with the, the books of the Bible. 
now I want to talk a little bit about the historical setting. I made this slide this week. I should have made this slide earlier because it puts into the historical perspective. There's no way you're going to remember all the, all the details, but a lot of the maps you see on the internet have a, too much stuff. I'm trying to keep it fairly simple. These are kings of Persia. And what's important about these kings, and these are the ones, most of these are mentioned in the Bible. What's important about this is if you wondered how is it that the king where the Jews were in Babylon, why would he, after capturing and bring him there, why would he send him back to Jerusalem? Well, the reason is the king of Babylon didn't send him back. The king of Babylon fell to the Persian Empire, Cyrus the Great. So Cyrus conquers Babylon. He's the one that issues the first <coughs> decree. And so um, remember that it, so it was 70 years before that they were exiled. That's over here if you wanted to find it on the timeline. But since we're, in, since we're Ezra and Nehemiah, um, this makes sense. This guy, this king, was not king for a long time. He's not mentioned in scripture. Um, when the building stopped, and we're going to talk about that, there was a king for only six months. I didn't even put his name in there. It's not important. I just don't want to fill your head with names that aren't as critical, right? Even this guy isn't as important, but he does take up some space. The names that you read in the Bible are going to be Cyrus, um, well, all these, these four. I put an asterisk here because the NIV is consistent using um, these names, which would history, if you read history books, these are the names you're going to see. But for whatever reason, a lot of the older translations, including NA, from King James to NAS, use this name, Ahasuerus. That's, so when you see that name, don't get confused. It's this guy. They're the same. And so if you're reading NIV, you're going to see this. You're reading some certain modern translations, but ESV, NAS, King James, New King James are all going to use this name. So don't get confused. It's this guy right here. <coughs> so if you go through history, we do a quick little review. Um, so fall of Babylon, first decree, not that long after, 50,000 Jews return under Zerubbabel. That's the first group. I'll have that slide again. I think that might be the next one. There's three groups, right? I showed this slide last week. So Zerubbabel's in the first group. Then there's a gap. Then Ezra. See a short gap here. I talked about Ezra last week. And now Nehemiah. So um, temple walls. So going back to here, this just gives you kind of a, a guideline here. The building stopped. We'll talk about that. Temple building resumed. Or actually, I think I talked about that already. Sorry about that. So temple building resumed. Uh, second decree is mentioned in Ezra. Temple finished. We already dealt with all of that. We're going to deal, I'll be showing you this slide again next week because we're going to be doing Esther. So Queen Esther happens in between, and that's when you hear his name in the Bible, or his name depending on your translation, because Esther, the whole thing with Esther happened between these two kings. We're, we're jumping ahead because the books of the Bible, the order they are, we'll be going backwards in time next week and doing this. Right now, we're here. So Nehemiah comes back and he becomes governor and his, his, his mission is to establish a, a good civil government and build a wall around Jerusalem for protection. So Historically, if we look at the Ezra and Nehemiah timeline, and I, am, I wasn't sure what to, 
I was going to call it the post-exilic timeline, which would be a better title, but I didn't want to, I thought it sounded too, I don't know, I, did, I didn't want to sound too academic, so I tried to keep it simple. Um, so I, I guess now I probably just told you a lot of stuff that's in my notes, so I've got to like, look, um, uh, look through and see what I, so I did, talked about this, um, and then I, so it looks like I didn't use my notes, so I'm telling, was just standing there telling you all this. Um, temple was dedicated and completed in 1516, if you wanted to follow the timeline. Um, unfortunately, the early uh, enthusiasm diminished. Uh, Jews were dispersed some more. People started losing interest in restoring Israel. Um, and so then, uh, but some, some Jews did prosper and decided, hey, let's go back to Israel. Nehemiah was one of them. He comes back to Judah, to Jerusalem, and is concerned. And so um, uh, Nehemiah's activity in the narrative uh, takes place during uh, this section right in here. Okay. Um, he does work concurrently with Ezra, even though if you go back to this slide, there's a gap. Uh, that's a gap between Ezra's major reforms and the wall being rebuilt. There is that moral laxity, but their times do overlap. Um, okay, so now let's talk about the content of Nehemiah. And we're going to go through a lot of verses. Uh, I think uh, if you wanted Nehemiah in a nutshell, he becomes governor and rebuilds the wall. So that's a summary of Nehemiah. Let's go through and we'll look at how, it, how the content progresses and you'll have to have your, um, be on your toes as far as reading verses. Nehemiah was, of course, not born in Jerusalem. He was born into the community of Jewish exiles living in Babylon. Uh, he rose to the high position of cupbearer uh, to Artaxerxes, this king right here which is apparently a, a pretty high position. And um, so he finds out about it, his heart's broken, and he wants to return and do something about it. Uh, he prays. Um, he's a man of prayer, as you can see, and this is his prayer, uh, which I hope you can read. And so he's deeply concerned about the honor and glory of God. And so we can be uh, concerned about what's happening in Israel uh, the nation of Israel today, but um, I think our first duty would be to pray and pray for their spiritual revival. Uh, God will judge Israel accordingly, and he will save Israel accordingly, and he has prepared a remnant, Paul says in Romans. So um, I'm not worried about it, uh, but I will pray. I pray that they respond well. Nehemiah's prayer suggests that he has a plan to be personally involved you know, and I think I saw Debbie here, and I think of something that Bob said. There's a lot of, Bob used to say, there's a lot of people that will come to you and say, I think you should do this. But what we need are people to say, I think we should do this, and I'm willing to do it. And that's who Nehemiah was. He was a guy who said, I think we should do this, and I'm willing to do it. And that's, that's what he did. So um, he has this position of authority, and after four months of prayer, an opportunity arise, arises him to share his concern with the king. And he, you know, probably took great courage to say, hey, king, 
I know you put me in this great position. I'm serving you, but I'd like to go do this. And um, the king obviously had uh, mercy on him. And this is the, the verse here that I want you to check out. Um, Artaxerxes apparently holds Nehemiah in high regard. And he not only grants him everything, but he even provides him a, a, a military escort, which is uh, pretty impressive. Um, Nehemiah knows, however, that the, prison, the, the provision of the king is due to what? A higher authority. You know, whatever happens in Israel is going to happen because God wants it to. We don't have to be concerned about that. Um, so the, starting in chapter 2, is, uh, through the next few chapters, as you can see in your note, is uh, regards the rebuilding of the walls. By the way, the, the, the journey, when, when Nehemiah or Ezra and those people in Zerubbabel say that they want to go, think about this, that the journey from the capital of Persia to Jerusalem was between 1,000 and 1,200 miles. And that's a long way when you're walking or on a donkey or on a camel or a cart. I mean, through the desert, there's bandits. I mean, the weather, there's no stores along the way. No paved roads. I mean, it's just, it's not a good trip, which is why a lot of Jews didn't want to go back. You know, I don't want to do that. You know, it's, it's, um, so once in Jerusalem, Je Nehemiah rests for three days. Uh, then he decides to go out at night because he knew there'd be opposition to their project. He decides to go out alone at night to make a personal assessment of the damage to the city, the city wall and its gates. And, and again, you can see how this is, when I say first person, when, when we say first person, we're, we're, we're writing a story where I did this, I did that. Uh, that's first person. And, and so you can see, so I went out at night, which is why tradition suggests that Nehemiah wrote this book. Um, so um, Ezra and Nehemiah bring dis distinctive godliness to Jerusalem. I mentioned that. I noticed they're both men of great faith. They're persistent in prayer. Um, where, where Ezra uh, brought years of learning in the scripture, Nehemiah brings his administrative skills uh, to the table. So he's a good organizer. Having made his assessment and deciding upon his strategy, <coughs> his next, next task is to inform and inspire the civic leaders to do the work. And he credits the Lord's goodness as the driving force behind the whole proceedings. And once, once they're informed, and he's apparently a good motivator, men with a variety of skills come forward and receive their assignments. Uh, chapter 3 is entirely devoted to identifying families by name who devoted themselves to specific locations of building the walls. And I think what a privilege that is you know, for, you to, for you and your family to be like remembered in scripture to the end of time as a family that devoted themselves and said, you know what, we're going to work on the sheep gate. You know, we're going we're gonna to do that. But opposition uh, to the work in Jerusalem is, um, uh, is expected and instigated by uh, these two guys, Sambalat and Tobiah. Um, they're Gentiles living in Samaria just north of the border. And, of course, they don't want to see a strong Jerusalem. Um, they, that they see them as a threat. Um, looking back, this has, hostility was anticipated the moment Nehemiah announced his intentions to come to Jerusalem. Um, as he originally passed through the provinces of the north, he would have had to pass through there 
once they saw Nehemiah with his military escort, they thought, uh-oh, we don't like what's going on here. And they probably started conspiring even then. Um, so the response of this Sambalat and his colleagues was mockery and contempt. You probably remember if you've read through Nehemiah, it's something, at least to me, that sticks out. You know, they're, they're, um, they're mocking them. They're, they're doing whatever they can uh, to stop the building of the wall. Um, so I'll let you read that real quick here. And so what happened is, as the work proceeds, then, well, this guy's hostility intensifies. And so he and Tobiah conspire with the Arabs in the region, the Ammonites and the Ashadites, to make a secret attack against Jerusalem to cause as much confusion as possible. They were trying to strike fear to them and make them, and so these families that, that had dedicated themselves to particular walls, you know, they, they don't have the, uh, the luxury of all being together where they can defend themselves as one army. They're spread out all around the wall that goes around the city. And so they're vulnerable. Um, and so by way of prayer, faith, and a plan of action, though, Israel persists, as you well know. They prayed to God. And the op even though the opposition intensifies with threats of harm and death um, when the Israelites least expect it. Um, so Nehemiah, a good leader, a great leader, counters these rumors by reminding the people of the protection of their great and awesome God. Uh, that's why the people in Israel need not fear. And I keep going back to that present day conflict that's going on right now. They need not fear if they're faithful. If they're, they're, they're going go to they, they'll go to God. And if they're fearing, it's probably because of their, their spiritual condition or lack, or lack of a good spiritual condition. So um, they continue building. And uh, it says in verse, this is verse 14 and verse 17, they work with a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other, uh, just to be prepared. Uh, the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem is, and I, I found this really remarkable, they completed it in four, 52 days. So the people, I mean, Nehemiah was masterful and just, and, and I remember getting a book on leadership and it was based on Nehemiah uh, years ago, but he was masterful in getting the people to work, you know, um, really, um, I don't know, ferociously is a word that comes into my mind. Um, so they uh, got the work done in 52 days, they worked, you know, sometimes day and night, it sounds like. They took turns sleeping. Um, they, uh, they, they slept in their work clothes and only, you know, changed when they had to, you know, get clean, I guess. Um, so once the walls are rebuilt, the uh, Sambalat, Sambalat, however you say his name, uh, he uh, decides he's got to go another tact. He sends an official invitation for Nehemiah to join them for some discussions. Well, Nehemiah, we need you to come to our place and meet with us. And uh, they did this five times, okay? Um, five times they, they asked him to come. And Nehemiah said, no, if I come, you're just going to ambush me. Forget that. And so he didn't do it. Um, but it seemed that uh, the hand of God was not only evident among the people, but even among others in the land that, uh, that 
they were being helped. Judah was being helped, not by their own strength and their own determination, but by the, the mercy of God. Uh, that's the first six chapters uh, deals with this part. Then the next section from 7 through 12 uh, deal with organization and worship and appointments. Uh, more And some technical stuff in there. Nehemiah spends considerable time, um, maybe as long as 12 years, organizing the affairs of the small nation of Judah because he plans to, when he told the king he was leaving, he said, King uh, Artaxerxes, I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity, um, but uh, I am going to come back. Don't worry, I'm going to come back. But he was gone for a long time. But he's preparing to leave, and it looks like it took him 12 years to try to get everything so they could self-rule. Kind of like I was involved in a church planning uh, group uh, that we would go to Peru, and the, the idea of us going to Peru um, was to help people be self-sufficient. And then we would leave. And it's like we would build something and give them the keys. It's your building. We built it, but it's yours. You know, and so that's Nehemiah is trying to make them be self-sufficient. Um, Nehemiah and Ezra call all the Israelites together, men, women, and children, old enough to understand what is being said, to done, said and done. Um, this is um, an example of maybe the earliest example of what we might call modern-day preaching. If people, if you trace the history of the, like the American church, you know, what we do, of course, we were predated probably what, hap what was happening in other churches, obviously, England, Europe, whatever. But the idea here is that this is almost, is, is most would consider this the pattern for what we see in church today. This was established during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. I hope you've had time, to, I've been babbling, so give you time to read this. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra rather, trained the Levites to teach the people of God. Again, just as Nehemiah was concerned about training leaders to govern, Ezra was concerned about training Levites to teach. And so the people worship Jehovah, they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which I talked about that feast last week. Um, there's mourning over their sins, um, and I think this is you know, what needs to happen. Not just that I've been picking on Israel this morning a little bit, saying how they need spiritual revival. We do too. And God, will, God is continuing to judge our nation, and we see what's happening, not just in government, but look what's happening in our schools and our culture. Our nation is a wreck, and um, we need spiritual revival too. And God's going to judge our, our, our nation. And we, we should not be surprised when we see bad things happening, maybe not in my lifetime, but it might be in your lifetime, where bad things happen uh, because we were unfaithful. Um, but Israel is unique. You know, they, we're, we're, not, we're not Israel. United States is not Israel. It is unique, but there are certainly parallels. Um, so um, they rejoice in God's mercy. That's um, again, we're in, we're in. When I don't, just heads up, I probably have said this. I don't remember, but when I don't put the book here, and I just put the verse. That just is uh, uh, shorthand to let you know we're in Nehemiah. The, that's the book we're studying today. Last week we we're in Ezra. If it didn't say the book, 
than the verses were from Ezra. I, I generally, just so you know my shorthand here, um, it just seems redundant to keep putting Nehemiah, 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 Nehemiah. So that's what I'm doing here. Um, okay, so they do, um, they make a, a covenant. Um, that's this right here, which is um, really great um, to do that. Um, what's even greater is to follow through. Um, a public register is set up to record the number of people living inside and outside the walls, including all who are priests and Levites. And so again, the, the very, a lot of detail in this, in this book of the Bible. Um, following the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem and the appointment of Levites to certain temple duties, Nehemiah leaves. So he's going to go, uh, go back uh, to Artaxerxes and um, that's what you see here in chapter 12. And then just as you might expect, um, another reformation is needed because what do people do? They get success, they call on God, things are great, and then they get comfortable, right? And um, Christians, at least in my generation, have used the word backslide. I never heard that word before until I became a Christian. I never heard that word. Did you, anybody have that relate to that? Like, it wasn't until I became a Christian, what, backslide, what's that mean? You know, like, what's, what's that? Um, so after a period of absence at the Persian court, uh, so scholars estimate that Nehemiah was gone for about 12 years. He, um, he goes back to, to Persia, the Persian court, but then he returns and finds that another reformation is needing. Um, he, um, Nehemiah discovers that a room in the temple had been designed to, to, to Tobiah. Remember that name? Tobiah, this is the same guy that was giving them trouble with Sambalat. And somehow he was very uh, um, smooth character and kind of weaseled him his way. He's an Ammonite and he plotted against Israel before and somehow he weasels his way into their good graces. And so Nehemiah says, Tobiah, get out of here, you know, you're out, you know. So he clears them out. Um, they um, try to get the Levites back to doing their job um, because they weren't. Um, he confronts the violation of the Sabbath day, and he shuts the city's gates of the, on the Sabbath to prevent merchants from coming in and trading. Um, he re addresses the issue of intermarriage uh, and rebukes those who have married foreign women. Um, again, that was a huge thing with, under Ezra. We talked about that last week. He renews the practice of bringing tithes and offering uh, to the storehouses and appoints treasurers to oversee the collection. Again, Nehemiah, great leader, right? Great organizational skills. He prays to God and ask, asking to remember his actions for the people, people's, uh, for the good of the people. And so this is uh, the conclusion of Nehemiah. So that's the book of Nehemiah, uh, my summary. So let's talk about Christ and the church. Now, the connection of Nehemiah with Christ and his church really runs parallel to Ezra, the book of Ezra, given that these two books were formerly one. So really everything I said last week, I probably could just repeat and say today. Um, so I won't do that. Um, there are, but there are numerous uh, parallels with the ministry of Nehemiah in the work of Christ. Uh, theologians call this topology. Um, this is when events or concepts 
or certain people foreshadow or illustrate a type of Christ. In fact, I'm working on, just this last week, I was working on a chapter in Genesis for a small group study for next year. And one of the questions is, how is Joseph a type of Christ? So Joseph is, uh, there are, you know, when he was, he really was innocent. And what did his brothers do? His brothers, you know, intend to kill him. Instead, you know, one of the brothers intervenes, don't kill him. They throw him in a pit. They sell him to traitors. He's basically offered, a, you know, it, it, there's parallels in what he's done and how he's raised up as a deliverer. I mean, there's parallels to Joseph and Christ. Joseph isn't Christ, but he's a type of, he's a foreshadow. He's, it's how God operates. And Jesus, of course, is, is um, the ultimate Joseph in a sense. But Nehemiah, there's parallels. So um, I'm just going to go through a few of these. It's going to go quickly. I think, are they listed in your notes? I made the notes. So, yeah. So, but what I do is I take my eight or nine pages of notes and then make a one-page version. And so I kind of forget what's on there. Um, so I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. Um, and I listed them here. If you don't have the notes handy, I think these are listed in the notes, right? Okay, so that's what I'm just going to go ahead and, and say a couple sentences about each one. Just as Nehemiah led the effort to rebuild the walls, uh, Jesus came to restore and rebuild what was broken down in humanity to sin. He brought spiritual restoration, offered a, a way for humanity to be reconciled with God. Uh, that's what he, uh, Nehemiah was concerned about uh, Israel's um, uh, condition, both spiritually and physically. He understood the importance of worshiping and living in uh, the land of Judah. Uh, as for leadership and deliverance, his leadership uh, delivered the Israelites from the oppression and the shame of living in a ruined city. It can be seen as a parallel to Christ's role, who delivers us again from the oppression of sin, gives us the promise of eternal life. Um, thirdly, Nehemiah's gathering of the people to rebuild the walls can be seen as a symbol of Christ gathering believers into a unified body, which is the church, um, bringing the people together for a common purpose and goal. Um, fourth, Nehemiah's efforts to cleanse the temple and restore proper worship can be seen as prefiguring uh, Christ's cleansing of the spiritual temple, which is the church. Uh, Jesus purifies believers and offers us a way to have a genuine relationship with God. These kind of overlap. Um, the next, uh, which would be E, uh, Nehemiah, consistent prayer and intercession for the people reflect on Christ's role as the ultimate intercessor between God and humanity. We learned about that in Hebrews last year. Jesus intercedes on behalf of believers before God, advocating for our salvation and our well-being. And then last, reformation and obedience. Um, I maintain... Uh, that the gospel is a message of, of faith and repentance, right? Nehemiah's call for the Israelites to return to obedience to God's law and to separate themselves from foreign influences can be seen as a parallel to Christ's call for believers to live according to his teachings. He said, if you love me, you obey my commandments. Um, we need to separate from the values of the world. Um, so that's pretty fast, I know. Um, I'm time-wise, I think I'm doing okay. I'm always looking at the clock, trying to make sure I fit all this in. Next week will be easier because I have Esther. Esther's not as long, but then the week after that is Isaiah, and that's going to be my real challenge. We'll see how I do with that. Um, so 
Bob got to teach a whole course on Isaiah, and I get 47, 45 minutes, so um, we'll see. Um, so application. Um, first is personal sacrifice. You know, Nehemiah, when you think of cupbearer, he wasn't just a butler, okay, uh, to the king. He was a trusted official in his court. He obviously held a privileged role. I mean, the fact is, if he was just a butler, the guy's going to say, oh, yeah, I'll give you all this money and let you go and give you an army, too. You know, so Nehemiah, um, uh, I have to think that that was a huge personal sacrifice. He probably had a good life. He had a good gig there in the Persian court. And yet he was willing to travel uh, over a thousand miles and uh, to do this and, uh, and be in danger. Right. Um, he left his position of comfort. He travels far. Um, I put this verse in there. I just added this this week. Uh, just um, because I, I think you should see the parallel. Um, Nehemiah uh, made a great sacrifice to come uh, to do what he did. And likewise, uh, Jesus calls us uh, to sacrifice as well. Uh, he willingly leaves everything when the Lord requires of it. And that should be a challenge to us. What are we willing to do? Are we willing? And I, I say over and over, I mean, we all need to serve. All of us. And now it doesn't necessarily mean, it's going to look different for all, everybody. I mean, I was just telling uh, Tim last night, I am grateful to be able to serve as a teacher. That's my job. But Tim does landscaping. He's done it professionally for years. And he's he, great that he gets to use his talent. Or Dave Myers, as an electrician, he can come and do electrical stuff for the church. It's, it, if, I'm grateful to be you. You all have talents, all of you. And so you should look, look to serve. And, and there's, every, there's nothing that's like, it's not like teaching is more important than doing electrical work. Okay, the body needs all of its parts. Okay, we need every finger, every toe. Teaching is important, but it's more like it's more of a responsibility on me. I better not be leading you astray. I'm the one that needs to worry about it. So I'm saying you need to serve. Um, but personal sacrifice is part of being a believer, without question. Um, Next is uh, fasting and prayer. Uh, Nehemiah consistently shows what a believer, uh, where a believer begins. Where does he begin? He seems to, he and Ezra, they begin with prayer. Um, in this case, fasting and persisting prayer. I have to admit, I'm kind of convicted here because I don't fast much. And usually when I fast, I don't know if I do it necessarily for spiritual reasons. And so I'm probably doing it for health reasons more than anything. And so I think this is challenging me to consider um, fasting for spiritual reasons. Um, you know, we read in Scripture that, that uh, fasting was a part, was like a, a norm, right, in the spiritual life. It's what we seem to read in the New Testament. And I don't know that fasting is, is a, when I say normal, I mean like statistically like a norm, I don't think fasting is the norm for a Christian, is it? I don't think so. Um, but um, fasting is, is related to prayer. And so I guess I would challenge you. To, I, I'm not saying, you know, you're not a Christian if you don't fast and pray. Um, but I would challenge you to consider it. Pr pray about it. See what you should do. I'll pray about it and see what I should do. And hopefully I'll, I'll respond if God's uh, speaking to me. Um, a further lesson from Nehemiah is the way he dresses God, bringing attention to God's 
covenant promises and his character. Um, and I, again, I, I worked through Psalms in my private devotion last year so I could do better at praise in my prayer. I'm not good at, like, I'm good at thanking God. I do a little confessing. God, yeah, I messed up here, I messed up there. Most of my prayer is supplication. I ask God, please do this, please do this, please do this, please. But I'm, so there's an acronym that people use. That you've probably, many of you have heard ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Supplication's asking for stuff. Thanksgiving and confession is obvious. But the A is where I'm probably the weakest, the adoration part in my prayer. And I, I'm trying to get better at that. I, I, I forget that a lot. And the thing is, I don't forget to praise my wife. Well, how is it that I forget to praise God? And so I, I should do a better job at that. Um, but um, so let's see, I'm, I'm trying to follow here. I got off page here, but I'm doing okay. I have three minutes. I think I'm on track here. Uh, strategy for the church is my third point. God gave uh, Nehemiah a heart to care for the city, but it, um, but it was his job to employ a strategy. We have to have a strategy. It's not just some, oh, I think I should do better at this. I want to do better at you know, praying. Well, that's not enough. You need a strategy. Right? You know what? I need a better prayer life. Okay. Nothing's going to change if that's where you end. Am I right? Yes? Okay. So what's your strategy? I have a strategy. You have a strategy? Right? I mean, I, I make it a point. I want to pray in the morning every day because I'm tired at night. I'm not good. At, for you, my, your strategy might be to pray at night. I'm more of a morning person. I fall asleep. You know? I wake up in the middle of the night and I, hopefully I pray then too. But the point is, you've got to have a strategy. When are you going to have time in the Word? Do you have a strategy? You need a strategy. Um, uh, so we're, we're, we're presenting all of ourselves, and we need to, to do that, we need a strategy. Nehemiah inspired the leaders to work hard in God's service. Um, you know, may we be like Joseph, who during the ministry of the apostles was... Uh, was, um, was called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Hopefully God's going to change our name and you know, make us a, a son of something good, right? One of Nehemiah's great gifts was using skills and expertise of those around him to do God's work. And so the, the task of our leaders is to try to get you involved. Our leaders, sometimes, it's hard at Christ the Word. Tim and I were talking about that before. It's hard at Christ where We have a lot of people. Not everybody can be a teacher, a preacher. Um, not everybody can be in charge in the nursery. Not everybody can, there's just, but there are a lot of jobs. And I would encourage you, the leaders need to go out and recruit people. You know, I see uh, at least Zach needs to go out and get more ushers and he needs to find people to, to usher, right? But you know what? Maybe Zach's overlooked to you. Maybe he doesn't know that you'd like to be an usher. Then go to Zach and tell him. Don't wait for a leader to come and find you. You need to offer yourself to do service. Am I right? Yes? I'm not wrong. That's how we get to end here. Okay, let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.